Lord, we lift up this time to you, God, and we pray that you would bless our time in the word, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would breathe life into us, that you would uh, convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord, and, and we would have an accurate understanding of these things, uh, Lord, and we would know not just um, what's going to happen, but how to respond to it, Lord, so please speak to us individually. In your name, amen. If you knew a terrible storm was coming, like a storm like the earth has never seen before, if you knew this horrendous storm was coming to Running Springs or wherever you may live if you're on vacation, uh, what would you do about it? Well, you'd probably either flee, right? You'd run. Or if you stayed, you would likely make sure that you were prepared as best as possible, right? You would make sure that you had extra water. You would make sure that you had extra food. You would make sure that your family's okay. They have a safe place to go. You would make sure that your house is up to par, that it could endure this storm. But you would certainly do whatever it takes to be prepared for this coming storm. See, Jesus, he's going to continue to teach us this truth that there is a storm coming like the world has never seen. And his heart behind him communicating these things to us is so that we would be prepared for this inevitable storm. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Preparing for the Inevitable. Preparing for the Inevitable. Jesus speaks these things so that we will be prepared. Now, if you weren't with us last week, um, some of this stuff might go over your head a little bit. Uh, basically, we introed Matthew chapter 24. We got all the way through verse uh, 31. And if you uh, don't know much about eschatology or end times, it's a lot of information. I don't want to overwhelm you. Uh, but if you weren't here last week, it will help you to grab the CD or listen to the last message. After this message, you'll be able to put some of the things uh, that I'm saying today together with the things that I mentioned last week. Uh, but essentially, in summary, Matthew chapter 24 is like the Lord's summary of revelation okay it's the lord communicating to us basically what's going to happen at the end of time and leading up to end times now we have to remember context uh this section of scripture is specifically written to jewish people a jewish jewish audience even references the people fleeing from judea Okay, in fact, Matthew's gospel is specifically for the Jew. Yes, it can speak to us today, but Matthew wrote it specifically for Jewish believers and unbelievers. That's why he references the Old Testament more than any other gospel. Okay, so we look at Matthew chapter 24. It's like revelation for the Jew. Revelation, the book of Revelation is for the church. The church is mentioned countless times in the beginning, specifically chapters 2 and 3. So through these two books, we can begin to put the pieces together as well as other things that are written in the epistles and the prophets. And it's a huge picture that we're trying to put together here. Okay, so, you know, doing last week's teaching and this week's teaching, there's a lot of information. Uh, I'll try to communicate as clearly as possible. Uh, but if I say some things, you're like, what is he talking about? Uh, you might have a better understanding if you listen to last week's message. Let's dive into the text. Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. It says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches, has when its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. He says, learn this parable of the fig tree. Okay, when a fig tree, its branch becomes tender and it produces leaves, you know that what is around the corner. He says it, summer is coming. Okay, basically Israel has a cycle and how certain crops and certain fruits are are produced and, and grow and they have these certain harvest periods. He's basically telling the disciples, just as you know that summer is coming based on how the fig tree responds and it producing leaves, so too should you understand that the end is near when you begin to see these things taking place. The things taking place the things that Jesus already communicated in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 31. 
There's going to be wars. There's going to be famine, pestilence, plagues, antichrists, the antichrist, the abomination of desolation, signs in the skies, all these different things that the Lord communicated. And that's essentially his heart. But there's also another interpretation of this. And I can't say uh, that I agree with it or that I don't agree with it. I don't think there's enough there to state it uh, for a fact. But there are Calvary Chapel pastors that teach it this way. And so I'll give you the info and tell you why I can't say for certain. That's how things are going uh, to take place. Now, first, we have to understand uh, the fig tree. Okay, the fig tree is mentioned throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And most of the time, it's representing... Israel's fruitfulness or Israel's character. Okay, what they're producing in their lives in context to their relationship with God. You remember when we discussed the parable of the, or sorry, not the parable, but uh, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, uh, and I'll show you Luke's account real quick. This might help us bridge the gap a little bit. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. It says, now the next day, When they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, understanding what Jesus is doing here, it's like, poor fig tree, he curses the fig tree. Now, we got to know that this was a representation of Israel, specifically Israel's hypocrisy. Now, when a fig tree during this time period, this was just before Passover that this happened, the last week of the Lord's life, so this is springtime, so the fig tree would produce leaves when summer was coming around the corner, but also a fig tree, before it produces leaves, it produces little first fruit figs little edible figs so if there's leaves on the fig tree that means that there should be a little bit of fruit on the fig tree see this is what jesus is getting at in cursing this fig tree israel was all leaves and no fruit okay they had the appearance of spirituality but but it was false it was a false form of spirituality they weren't truly producing godly character because there was a disconnect in their relationship with god so we see the fig tree is often used to describe the fruitfulness or the fruitlessness of israel meaning their character when i say fruit okay so that being said Many take this parable of the fig tree to mean to give us a precise time as to when the Lord is going to return. Let me show you something real quick in Isaiah chapter 66. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8, says this. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born as one, at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Many, referring to the parable of the fig tree, use this to make the statement that the time period that Israel was birthed in a day. What am I referring to? Now, remember, after uh, the Romans uh, basically destroyed uh, much of Jerusalem, including the temple, we see the Israelites fled and they were no longer a nation for a very long time. They were a people group, but they didn't have uh, a land. They didn't have Israel. They didn't occupy Israel anymore until what? After World War Two. May 14th, 1948, a nation was birthed in a day. Okay, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8. Can a nation be birthed in a day? It happened in history. The nation of Israel was rebirthed in one day. So many people take the parable of the fig tree and they say, just as when the fig tree buds, so too do we know the end of the time is near. It goes on to say, and I'll explain this later, that the generation that sees this will see it to the end. They'll see the very end of time. So basically, many people will say that those, that generation that was alive in 1948, that witnessed Israel's rebirth as a nation in one day, 
that very generation, people from that generation will still be alive when the Lord comes back. Now, I'll say this. It's a great explanation. Jesus says, and we'll get into it. He doesn't even know the time or the hour. None of us, no man knows the time or the hour. So this is nothing that we could be confident on. Very creative, very interesting. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. But I'm not teaching that to you so that you go, this is what's going to happen. I teach it so that you understand there's some creative interpretations out there. That'd be cool if it happened and he'd be coming back very soon. But we can't say that without a shadow of a doubt that that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, the point that the Lord's making is this. Jesus is trying to get across the fact that once the beginning of the end starts, the end is right around the corner. He'll be coming back soon. Just as we see the leaves on a fig tree, that points to the truth that summer is around the corner. When we see some of these signs, these things that Jesus says are going to happen, as I mentioned um, the Antichrist, the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, signs in the skies, all these things that the Lord mentioned, wars and rumors of wars and plagues and pestilences and famines and all these things. We're going to know that he's going to come back quickly. OK, so Jesus is trying to get us to open our eyes. And he says this in verse thirty three. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. When you see the abomination of desolation, followed by the great tribulation, signs in the heavens, know that he's coming back soon. Point number one, discern the signs of the times. Discern the signs of the times. So often the Lord does things in our life to get our attention and he does it for our good. In Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4 verse 20, he says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my saints. Look at verse 25. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Basically, what he's saying is when God's trying to tell you something, open your ears. When he's trying to show you something, open your eyes, incline your ears to hear, have eyes to see when he's doing things in your life, when he's speaking things in your life. Pay attention. He's trying to get something across to you. Now, when we hear thunder and we see lightning, what do we know is happening or going to happen? Storm's coming, right? When we hear thunder, we see lightning. We know, duh, a storm is coming. So often the Lord will speak things into our life, show us things in our life to, to prepare us, to warn us of things that are coming up in the future. If you've been in a season where you're facing obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, there's a good chance that the Lord's trying to get your attention about something. He's trying to get something across to you. But if we're blinded to it or we're, we, we, uh, we're deaf to it, we're not going to get the message that he's trying to communicate to us. He's saying, pay attention, see these things, open your eyes. When these things start happening, it's going to be very short before he comes back. Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Some say this generation, well, he's speaking to the disciples, so he must be referring to the generation of the disciples. The problem is the disciples didn't see a lot of this stuff happen. They didn't see these things happen. So that either means that Jesus is a liar and a false prophet, or that's not the generation that he's talking about. He's not talking about the generation of the disciples. Some will say, as I mentioned before, the generation that he's referring to is the generation that saw the rebirth of Israel. They'll see the end. Okay, maybe this is what Jesus is very, very plainly getting across. This time period from the beginning of the end to the end, the tribulation, it's going to be short-lived. It's going to be a very short time period. All these things aren't going to take place in like a thousand, two thousand years. When the beginning of the end starts, the end of the end will be short shortly after that in fact we see throughout the bible uh it's referenced to be seven years when the tribulation starts it's going to end in seven years so the same generation that saw the beginning of the end will see the end of the end that's this generation that he's referring to in matthew chapter 24 
Verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus is emphasizing how serious he is in what he's communicating. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What does he mean heaven and earth will pass away? Aren't we going to go to heaven to be with the Lord? Let me show you something. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt away with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In light of what's going to happen to the heavens and the earth, how should you live? Look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, how is this going to happen? In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Colossians 1, 16, says that all things consist in him. All things consist in the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically speaking of Jesus. You know that illustration like, or that song, he's got the whole world in his hand. It's true. He's got everything in his hand. Like he's literally holding the fabric of our being together. Um, this is amazing when you look into science. We won't get into it now. But so many scientists stumble on the problem, how atoms keep themselves intact and the gravity and the uh, uh, the weight and, and, and all these different scientific experts have this problem of understanding how all these things work. The truth of it's revealed in scripture. God holds it all together. So now when we look at this, what's going to happen? The heavens, the earth, all the elements, it says, will be burned away. When God let goes his, let goes, lets go of his hand, what's going to happen? Everything's going to be destroyed. Literally, this is what's going to happen. If that, the Lord does that and it, and it plays out how scripture seems to point to, when the Lord lets go, it's going to be like a nuclear bomb everywhere at the same time. Like every, all the atoms, they're going to collide. It's going to be a nuclear bomb all at the same time. We're talking about fervent heat, like heat the world has never seen before because he holds it all together when he lets go. It will all be destroyed. Now, what happens to us? Well, we'll have glorified bodies. Our, our bodies will be like nuclear resistant. Okay, we won't have to worry about this. Uh, and we see also, if you want to study this more, uh, in Revelation chapter 20, God is going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. It's not that all existence is going to cease to exist. Uh, we see that matter, for the most part, will cease to exist uh, in context to how we understand it in physics today. He's going to allow, allow all of it to be burnt away. So Jesus, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, verse 35. But the emphasis of this isn't that heaven and earth will pass away. It's the next thing. But by my words will by no means pass away. His words, words will never pass away. His words are eternal. In Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Verse 10. Says this. Uh, look at verse 9 for context. Uh, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God says, he states, I declare the end from the beginning. Why? He's got the whole plan figured out already. He ain't changing his plan. He's declared the end from the beginning. We see references to the end times way back in Genesis. We see references to the end times throughout scripture. The Lord laid out his plan. He told us what's going to happen in the end. If something hasn't happened that the Lord has communicated in his word, we can be confident that it's going to happen. Okay, we got to remember the context of this chapter in Matthew chapter 24. What was the Lord's first prophecy? He said the temple was going to be destroyed. There wouldn't be one stone left. 30 plus years later, what happened? The temple was destroyed, completely destroyed, just the way the Lord said it. The things that he says are going to come to pass. If there's things that he said that haven't come to pass, it means 
They haven't come to pass, but they will come to pass eventually. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means will be passed away. If the Lord says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. It's going to pan out exactly the way he says. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 36. But on that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. He says this knowledge of his second coming is reserved for his father only. Now that poses the question, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was fully God. There's something he doesn't know in his earthly ministry in his humanity. It was something that he didn't know. Okay, this is something that you might want to study. It's referred to as the hypostatic union. Okay, the hypostatic union is basically the doctrinal belief that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We see it all throughout the scriptures, even the Old Testament. He claims to be God time and time again. Okay, fully God, fully man. This doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't do certain things. It means that he chose not to. He chose not to exercise his deity. He was fully capable as op- of operating as God. He chose not to. Why? Because he's not just fully God. He's fully man. And as fully man, he's the way. He shows us the way to live. Even in this text, he wants us to walk through our knowledge of the end times with this not knowing everything, with this uh, waiting eagerly for him to come back. So in his humani- humanity... He doesn't exercise this knowledge uh, of being aware of when the end is actually going to happen. He, he exercises his humanity to teach us the way so that we're always eagerly awaiting. Again, doctrinally, it's referred to the hypostatic union. Okay, so, but with this being said, got to be careful about anyone who says they know when these things are going to happen. There's been many sects and religions that have said the end's going to happen now or they'll put a day on it or a date. He says, don't listen to that. Be, be, be aware that these things are going to happen as a time you don't expect. No one knows the exact day. If I try to tell you one day I figured it out, just leave the church, okay? Don't even come anymore. If I say I got to figure it's going to be this day, just be like, okay, he lost it, okay? He went, he went off the deep end somewhere because no one knows the Lord says this. Now, I'll bring more clarity to this. Uh, we'll get back to it in a second as some things come up. Uh, uh, don't want to confuse you now. You'll understand in a second. Verse 37, it says this. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is saying that just as the world was in Noah's time, so too will it be at the end of the age, at the end of time. Let's look at one verse real quick in Genesis chapter 6 to understand what the people were like before Noah's flood. Noah's ark, God's flood. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought of his heart was evil. They didn't have a heart after God. They didn't have minds set on God. Everything they were doing, thinking, seeing, it was all wickedness, all evil. So God brought the flood to start over, to wipe the wickedness from the earth. Jesus tells us that people are going to be like that before the end comes. And he says specifically what they'll be doing. Verse 38 For as in the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. This is what the majority of people will be doing. They'll just be doing everyday stuff. They won't be focused on God. They'll be focused on themselves. They'll be eating. They'll be drinking. They'll be marrying, giving in marriage. It's not that these things are bad in and of themselves. It's that their focus is on carnal things, not on spiritual things. They're not heavenly minded. They're living in the moment. This is how people are going to be before the Lord comes back it says verse 39 till the day that noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the son of man be 
just as Noah warned people, preached passionately, tried to get their attention so that they could be on the ark with him so that they could escape this judgment on the earth. See, Noah was warning the people and they ignored his warnings. It's going to be like that at the end. But people aren't just going to be ignoring a man's warnings. They're ultimately ignoring God's warnings. Okay. Point number two, don't ignore God's warnings. Don't ignore God's warnings. Sadly, but truly, we often don't take heed to God's warnings or respond to God's warnings until it's too late and we have to suffer the consequences. Speaking of Hurricane Harvey, there was an infamous hurricane a while back known as Katrina, right? And the people were warned by man time and time again, the levee system isn't going to hold, the whole place is going to be flooded, you need to get out of here. And they told him beforehand, you, we need to work on this and build this up to par so that we can last and it doesn't flood all of New Orleans and what happened? They didn't take heed to the warning. Thousands of people died, billions of dollars worth of damage. The warning was there, the truth was there, but they didn't respond to the truth. And because they didn't respond to the warning, they suffered devastatingly, not just materially, but people actually lost their lives. But that's what pride does in our life. See, it's pride that will lead us to not take heed to the warnings. It's pride that leads us to ignore God's warnings. Pride tells us, it's never going to happen to me. I'll never have to suffer the consequences of this. This will never happen to me. It's not really going to happen. Pride tells me I'm above my circumstances. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. The moment that we think we're standing on two feet, the moment that we think we got it, that's when we should be the most careful, the most suspicious, the most aware God's trying to get warnings across to us sometimes and we ignore them just like the people. Has God been warning you about something? Maybe it's a specific sin. Maybe it's a specific behavior. Maybe it's a specific relationship. Maybe it's a specific job or an individual that you're involved with. Whatever the case may be, God warns us about things because he loves us. He doesn't want us to face the consequences that are inevitable if we don't take heed to the warning. In Jeremiah chapter 6, in Jeremiah chapter 6, give you a little backdrop. Jeremiah was a young prophet uh, during um, the time before the Babylonian exile and during the time of the Babylonian exile. And basically, one of Jeremiah's main um, objectives by God was to, to warn the people. See, the people were, they were worshiping idols in the temple. The leaders were leading them astray. And so what God did was he raised up Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to punish Israel. And Israel was to be under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. That was a punishment. Why? Because they were out of control. They were rebellious. And God was using that to discipline them. And that's why Jeremiah walked around with a yoke around his neck and you say, submit to this punishment from God. Like I'm telling you, this is from the Lord. He sent these uh, Gentiles, he sent these infidels and the people of Babylon to, to teach you a lesson. And what did the people do? They rebelled time and time again. They fought against the authority that God was trying to place in their life, even though it was a corrupt authority. And king after king rebelled against the king of Babylon and God punished every one of them. Those kings, they started getting captured until the last king. You know what happened to him? Nebuchadnezzar had his sons killed right in front of him, then plucked out of his eyes. So the last thing that he saw was the consequences of his disobedience, that his sons, not just him, that his sons would pay the price. Jeremiah chapter 6. Verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning? 
that they may hear. Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of the young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days, and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, the Lord warning the people. Jeremiah's like, I don't even know who to tell this to because no one is listening to me. I'm trying to warn them. And basically God says, because they wouldn't submit to the authority of Babylon, now they're going to lose everything. Okay, they're going to get everything taken from them. Their families are going to be taken. Their land's going to be taken. The temple we see was destroyed. That was essentially taken all because they wouldn't take heed to the initial the initial warning. See, when we ignore the warnings of God, we're just inviting greater consequences into our life. When we close an ear to it, God doesn't warn us because he wants to punish us. He, he warns us so that we won't have to receive these devastating consequences. The people... They wouldn't take heed. They wouldn't respond. They continued to ignore. And they lost a lot. They faced devastating consequences. What are you willing to lose by not taking heed to God's warnings? They were willing to lose everything. That's how much pride got the best of them. They wouldn't listen. Look what happens. Matthew chapter 24, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will, men, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now, this is important uh, to understand. Okay, Uh, the Greek word taken here. The Greek word taken in this text, as he says, I'll give you an example. Uh, the two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two men and two women grinding. One will be taken and the other left. It means to take someone to be with you. Okay, Take someone to be with you. It doesn't mean taken like they're going to be judged. We'll see the ones that are left are the ones that are going to be judged. Now, this can get a little confusing when you look at Matthew chapter 24 in its entirety. When you look at scripture across the board, we see technically there's two second comings. Let me tell you. Okay. The first one is the rapture. The Lord comes in the air. Okay. He meets us in the air. The second one, he's going to come and physically stand on the Mount of Olives. Okay. He'll have the battle of Armageddon after he defeats them, throws the antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Then he'll establish his millennial kingdom. It's Revelation chapter 19 towards the end and uh, chapter 20. Um, we talked a lot about that, about, uh, a lot about that last time. Okay. So what coming jesus is referring to here appears to be the rapture okay he says one's going to be taken the other's going to be left okay and again that word taken is taking someone to be with you now referring this coming he says therefore verse 44 you also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect The rapture of the Lord. He's coming in an hour that we do not expect. Now, the event that we see in Scripture, most likely, hear me, most likely that will signify the beginning when the rapture happens. Let me show you. In Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11. Verse 25. It says... For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Okay? The Jews, they have a spirit of blindness. Yes, we have Messianic Jews, but Jews, for the most part, they have a spirit of blindness over their eyes. Their eyes are veiled to the truth about Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah. I was talking to a Jewish woman the other day, and I mentioned Jesus. She's like, oh, don't talk to me about that Jesus stuff. 
Why? Because she's got a veil over eyes. Uh, you know, there's other conversations that I've had with uh, Jewish people and they've gone really well and pointing them to the Old Testament and how we can preach the gospel through the Old Testament in their Bible. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And some I've had, had some success stories and some uh, not so successful stories. But the point is, there's this blindness over the Israelites until when? What does it say? Until the fullness of the Gentiles. OK, this is believed to be the fullness of the Gentiles when that last Gentile gets saved. Okay. When that last Gentile comes to know the Lord, that's likely, likely the event that starts the rapture. We will not know when that last Gentile gets saved. I hope I'm the guy that's preaching to that person that gets saved that last one. We're all like, you talk about like the blessings of obedience, right? It's like, man, you got that last guy. Now we all get raptured. Everybody benefits from it. Okay. So this is believed to be, uh, the, the event that really marks the rapture. Okay. So when this happens, we can't be aware of. Let me also state that we know that the tribulation is an avenue by which the Lord uses to open the eyes of the Jews says they're going to have the spirit of blindness until that last Gentile gets saved. Then the Lord's going to start opening their eyes. We see him do that through the tribulation in Zechariah chapter 12. It says they're going to look on the one whom they pierced. Then in Zechariah chapter 13, we see that two thirds of the Jews die during the tribulation. A third are saved. The tribulation isn't just God pouring out his wrath on man. It's also an avenue of grace to get the Jews attention so that the veil is lifted. Right. So the only event that we can really see in scripture other than those things leading up to the end times, is this, that last, the fullness of the Gentiles. That's likely the thing that's going to happen to lead into the rapture. So we have no idea when that last Gentile is going to get saved, okay? That's the rapture. That's the Lord coming in the air. The second coming, which is often referred to as the second coming of the Lord, uh, as I mentioned in Revelation 19 and 20. We also see it in Zechariah chapter 14. Um, we will have a pretty good idea of when that's happening. Why? Because throughout Scripture, you look at Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, all throughout Revelation, we see this time period. From the beginning of the tribulation, when Antichrist signs the peace treaty, uh, making peace in the Middle East, from there, we got seven years till the end, okay? The abomination of desolation is in the middle. And it says things like 12, two increments of 1260 days. It references, uh, three, uh, three and a half years, two increments of three and a half years. We see that seven year time period mentioned many times throughout the scripture. So the coming that we're not aware of that we have no idea when he's coming back is the first one and that's the one that we really got to worry about that's the rapture the second one we know we'll be gone it won't even matter hopefully all of us will be gone but we won't even know um sorry we will know when the beginning of the tribulation happens that it's going to be seven years to the day that it ends okay because the, the scripture speaks clearly of that but the first coming the rapture we have no idea when it's going to happen Okay, that's why it gets a little confusing. Jesus is saying like, you know, discern the signs of the times. Be aware of these things because you'll know the time is coming. Referring to his second coming, the rapture. He also refers to no one's no one's going to know when it's going to happen. Okay. Um, Now, if you would with me back to Matthew chapter 24. So this is the heart behind what Jesus is saying. Verse 42 says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Either way, the point he is making is clear. Be watchful and ready. And that's point number three. Be watchful and ready. Be watchful and ready. That's the heart that he's trying to get across. Because you don't know, you better be on point. How do we practically do this how are we watchful and ready well i'll give you some scripture it's john chapter 14 verse 15 you can write it down jesus says if you love me keep my commandments Uh, our relationship with the lord is expressed through obedience those that truly love the lord are going to do their best to do what he's asking them to do he says if you love me keep my commandments and second peter you can write this down uh verses uh second peter chapter one verses three to four 2 Peter 1, 3-4, it 
paraphrased. He says, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his divine nature, meaning God has set us up for success. Like there's no reason why we wouldn't be prepared unless we just chose not to do it, unless we choose not to do what God's asking us to do. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. So there's no reason. There's no excuse like, oh God, I didn't know. It's like, no, I've given, I've given you these things freely. You just have to receive these things. Now, practically, another way, good way, to evaluate whether or not we're actually being watchful, whether or not we're actually ready, James chapter 1, verse 23, it says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. James uses this illustration of the word of God being like a mirror, right? You look in the mirror sometimes, you're like, good hair today. It's not that bad. I look pretty good today. And other days you're like, oh my gosh, I look like a wreck. And that's the truth of the word. Sometimes we look at it and like, dude, I, I'm doing this. Yeah, like I, I'm doing what he's asking me to do right here. And then other days you're like, bro, I'm so far off. Like I'm so far from walking in the word and, and doing what the Lord is communicating through this text. But the point is, the word of God is like a litmus test to help us understand whether we're prepared or not. We can look at it and say, okay, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm pretty prepared. And there might be times or even people like, I am never, I'm so far. I look at the word of God and I'm not doing any of this stuff. That's a dangerous place to be. Now, not only is the word of God a tool to help us be prepared to be ready, he also says, be watchful. And the way we're watchful is through prayer. First Peter chapter one, sorry, first Peter chapter four, first Peter four, seven says this in context to the end times, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Since the end is coming, like you better be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious. Focus on the Lord. Take his word seriously. Take prayer seriously. And Luke, you can write this down. Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Luke 21, verse 36. Now, uh, to give you a brief context, Luke chapter 21 um, is, is really the same conversation as Matthew chapter 24. Okay, it's the Olivet Discourse. There's some different wordings because we got a different perspective, but he's talking about the same stuff, the same time period. Okay, and listen to what uh, Luke writes that the Lord said after he communicated about all these end times things happening, after he communicates what's going to happen during the tribulation. He says, pray that you're worthy to escape these things. He says, pray that you're worthy to escape these things, implying that there will be those that escape the tribulation. It's one of many reasons why I believe pre-tribulation rapture. He said, there's going to be those that are worthy to escape these things. You should pray that you're worthy to escape these things. Why? How, is our, how, how do we gain worth? We gain worth through our relationship with the Lord. And prayer is an avenue by which we seek that relationship. We talk to him, we pursue him, we seek him. If you're praying that you're worthy, meaning you're seeking the Lord... God, hey, I want to be in right relationship with you. I don't want to be like wiling out and, and not really living out my faith. I, I want to I want to actively pursue you. If we're having that type of relationship with the Lord, we will escape these things because he declares us worthy based on his worth, not ours. It's through his relationship with us. Now is the time to pray, not later. Don't pray that you're counted worthy later. There might not be a later as we see here in the text. And putting off spiritual things, specifically prayer, costs us deeply. It can be devastating. You remember the disciples in Luke 22, right? Jesus told them to do what? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. In the moment, Jesus probably needed the disciples more than any other moment. He says, watch and pray because you've got to be spiritually on guard or you're going to get knocked on your butt. You're going to be on your heels. You're going to be caught off guard if you're not spiritually prepared, if you're not being watchful and ready. And what happened? He comes back and they're sleeping. And then what happens? The guards come. And then what happens? The disciples flee. I wonder what would have happened if Jesus came back and they were praying. What would they have done differently? How would they have been prepared in that situation? 
because they did what the Lord asked them to do. But they weren't. They fled in fear. Fear is not from the Lord. Yes, we have fear of the Lord, but fear from enemies is not from the Lord. They would have had faith in that moment. We only know what could have happened. The point is, when we don't take them seriously with this being watchful and praying thing, being prepared, we're going to get caught off guard. Matthew chapter 24, verse 45. says, who then, he uses an illustration, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give him food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Talk about the wicked servant in a second. But we see this faithful servant, and we see two words that describe this faithful servant. Actually, three when you use the word servant. But he says, verse 45, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? This is how you'll escape these things if you're a faithful and wise servant. Point number four, be a faithful and wise servant. Be a faithful and wise servant. Faithful? Yeah, in other words, trustworthy. That the Lord can count on you. That he can trust you to do the things that he's asking you to do. Are you trustworthy? Can God count on you to do the things that he's asking you to do? Now, let me put this in a different perspective. We see in 1 Timothy, you can write this down. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Timothy 1.12, context, this is Paul basically communicating about how much of a wretch he is, okay, and that he's a chief sinner, that's when he says this, all right, but he says, however, God has counted me faithful in trusting me into the ministry. God had faith in Paul. You know God has faith in you? Like, we have faith in God, but God has faith in you. He believes in you. Like, literally, love believes all things. God believes in you. He believes that you can do the things that he's asking you to do. He believes, he has faith in you that you can be faithful. But are we being faithful? Can he count on us? Can he trust in us? Are we walking out that faith? Not only does he say he was faithful, he also says he was wise. Wisdom. The most common uh, definition in the Bible is the application of knowledge, right? The application of knowledge, but it also can mean uh, to be able to discern what is true and what is false. See that in Hebrews 5, the word of God gives us the ability to discern what is good and what is evil. It also, wisdom, is the ability to make godly decisions. Not just that I understand what's wrong and I understand what's right, but I do the thing that's right. And I, and I don't do the thing that's wrong. This is, these are all definitions of wisdom. Do you do what you know to do? Do you do the things that you know you're supposed to do? This is wisdom. Doing the things that I know to do. Do you see the difference between good and bad? Now I say that and everybody's like, yeah, duh. I've known that since I was a kid. But let me tell you, personally, there was things when I first came to the Lord that I didn't think were bad. And now I know they're abominations to the Lord. There's things that we learn throughout our relationship with God. Like, I didn't think this was that bad. And now he's, dude, this is horrible in his eyes. The more that we're in the word, the more that we're pursuing relationship with good, uh, with, with God, we have a better definition and understanding what, what's evil and what's good, what's pleasing in his sight and what's displeasing. But it only comes through relationship. But it's one thing to know the difference between the two. It's another thing to, to do them. In Colossians chapter 4, in Colossians chapter 4, uh, verse 5, it says, walk in wisdom. Wisdom isn't just an intellectual thing. It's a way we walk. It's a way we live. It's something that we do. When you call someone wise, you're usually talking about their intellectual capacity. But biblically, that's not only what wisdom is in the Bible. It's walking in what they know to do. Do you walk in what you know to do? This was a character of the faithful servant. Yes, he was faithful. He was also wise. Good thing about wisdom is that the Lord will give it to us freely. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 5, James 1, 5, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it to you. If you're struggling with like, I don't know what the right decision is here, what, what the good thing is to do, what the pleasing thing is to do, what the displeasing thing, the bad thing, the wicked thing, the Lord will give you wisdom to help you make some of those decisions. But not only was he wise, not only was he faithful, he's referred to as a servant. We're called to be bond servants of Jesus Christ. 
See, that's one of the ways the Lord expresses this relationship with us. We see it throughout the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Now, when you think bondservant, literally, it's a slave, okay? It is a slave. And we think slavery, we have like this negative connotation with it. Slavery is a bad thing. But in this culture, slavery was a good thing. It would be like this. If, if you uh, didn't uh, produce enough crops for your family or you didn't have the means to provide for your family, you could sell yourself as a slave under someone else that had more provision and literally your family would be saved because of it. Now, we know the Israelites misused this a little bit, but traditionally in Scripture, it was only supposed to be a six-year act of service. They were supposed to serve as a slave for six years and then be released. And we see in Exodus that they had the opportunity to be released. But if the slave decided, I love my master because my life with him is better now than it was before when I assumed I was free, they choose to follow their master for eternity. And this is what that servant thing means in our relationship with the Lord because our master is so good to us and because life with him is so much better now than it was before we had a master. We choose to serve him for eternity. This is what kind of servant this man was, a faithful and wise servant. And look what happens, verse 46. It says, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Blessed literally means happy. Okay, this dude's going to be happy when the master comes back and finds him faithful. The evil servant, he's going to be very unhappy when the master comes back and finds him unfaithful. And we'll look at that. Verse 47, real quick. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make a ruler over all his goods. Now, this is true of the church. We will rule and reign with Christ. It says we'll even judge the angels, those that are his. We don't just serve him. We rule and reign with the Lord, just as we see with the servant. Matthew chapter 24, verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two pieces and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servant, the evil servant He's prideful and he's got a carnal mindset. This is the fifth final point. Don't be prideful and carnal. Don't be prideful and carnal. Jesus shows us what to do. He also shows us what not to do or what to be and what not to be. Basically, this guy has the mentality that the master isn't coming back anytime soon, so I'm going to live it up. I'm going to live in the moment. I'm going to have as much fun as I can. I'm going to drink with the drunkards and I'm going to beat my servants. This was fun for him, I guess. I don't know if that's like something that you enjoy, uh, but this guy enjoyed that. He liked beating his servants. That He took pleasure uh, in that. This guy was very prideful. In 1 Peter 5, 5, it says this. 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God literally, he's, he's in opposition to those who are prideful, but he supports, he even exalts the humble. This man's not only prideful, as I mentioned, he's, he's carnal. And it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, Romans 8, 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. For to be carnally minded is death. This man, he is going to die because of his carnal mindset. And we can look at that and say, well, I'm saved, but carnality can bring death to so many different areas of our life. It can bring death to to relationships that we have. It can bring a, a death to the relationship that we have with God. It can bring death to the blessings of God. Because we're acting a certain way, we're doing certain things, we're thinking a certain way. And God's like, man, I want so much more for you and you're limiting you're limiting me from blessing you in the capacity that I desire to. This man was going to lose his chance in spending eternity with the Lord because of his prideful, carnal mindset. A couple things about this servant. Look at the qualities of this evil servant, okay? As opposed to the faithful, wise servant, he didn't do what his master asked him to do. He didn't accomplish the work that the master gave him. Are you doing the work that God gave you to do? Are you walking in the good works that he's prepared for you? 
Not only that, it says he mistreated his fellow servants. How do you treat people outside of the church? Are you someone that's kind, that's generous, that, 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 that loves on people? Or it's, I'm in the church this way, but when I leave here, I'm, I'm verbally abusive. I beat people down. Uh, I'm not this faithful, wise servant building people up. No, I'm breaking the people down. This was a character quality of the evil servant. So, well, he pursued worldly desires. As I mentioned, he was carnal. He was pursuing what pleased him versus what pleased God. This was a character quality of the evil servant. He was all in it for himself. He did things for his own pleasure. He wasn't doing things for the pleasure of God. Now, this guy's referred to as a servant of the master, but he doesn't look like a true servant. This is a picture of someone that maybe maybe comes to church, maybe by all standards we would call them a Christian, perhaps. Maybe they even serve in the church so much so that we would call them a servant, but... The way they're living uh, apart from the church or at home or in certain areas and arenas and in their life is far from a faithful and wise servant. It says in verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. That evil servant, he's going to get caught off guard. He's literally going to get caught on his heels. I'll tell you a short story and we'll end here in a minute. Um, I used to play baseball, and uh, one time I was practicing, it was like, I was 12 or 13, uh, and, and I was playing catcher, I was filling in, and uh, my, my coach was like throwing the ball up, doing like uh, infield drills, right? And uh, there was a guy on third base, a runner on third base, uh, if you can picture this, he threw the ball up, he hit it to the second baseman. Now the guy on third, he takes off towards home. So the second baseman, he throws the ball to me, I tag out uh, the guy that was running home, but out of the corner of my eye, I see the initial runner rounding first and going to second base. So I just react, I spin around, and I gun it down to second base. Second baseman standing on second base, looking this way. The ball comes, he just turns, bam, knocks him out. Literally knocked him out. He had internal bleeding in his head. He got caught off guard. He's fine now. He's fine. <laughs> Great guy. <laughs> <laughs> probably i don't know he might have lost some memory but i no, he's fine he really is fine uh but but anyways what's the point this guy got caught on his heels he, he wasn't ready he wasn't prepared he was somewhat in the right position but he wasn't paying attention he, he didn't keep his eye off the ball and he got caught off guard bible saying there's going to be christians that get caught off guard or people that claim that they're christians they might be partially in the right position but they're really out of position because they're not ready. They're not living it. They're not doing what a Christian should do. He's not doing what a second baseman does. Catch the ball, tag the guy out. See, this is one of those terrifying scriptures. Jesus tells us what's going to happen to this guy in verse 51. And we'll cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's assumed to be a servant. But... The place that's appointed to him is a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see Jesus reference this topic time and time again. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, uh, On that day, uh, many will call to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Uh, I never knew you. That is so terrifying. These are people that are calling him Lord. Like people that probably pray, Lord, Lord, or say, Lord, 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 like Jesus is my Lord. You say, you call me Lord, but I ain't your Lord. You don't treat me like your Lord. You're not my servant. You don't serve me. You serve yourself. In Matthew chapter 13, we talked about this a while ago, but Jesus gives us another illustration about this, uh, and it's referred to as the parable of the wheat and tares. thing about wheat and tares is they look very much the same. Wheat is something that's productive. Tares were like weeds, but they look very similar. And the point was, Jesus was making that there's unbelievers in the church. There are unbelievers in the church, and you can't really tell the difference uh, whether they're a wheat or a tear. And we won't know these things until the end of time when the Lord reveals who is actually a wheat, who is actually a tear. Now, Jesus communicates these things to us so that we'll be aware, so that we'll be prepared, so that we'll be on guard. I don't think his heart is just that we would be afraid. But if there is fear... 
then the Lord will absolutely use that to get you ready, to get you prepared. If there's any shadow of doubt, if there's any speculation, I don't know, I might be this evil, wicked servant and not this faithful, wise servant, then make the changes now. Be the faithful, wise servant. He laid it out. He's given us his word. He's given us the power to walk in his word. He's given us everything we need, including the love needed to be a faithful and wise servant. See, in light of our knowledge of the future, we should live diligently for the Lord in the present, eagerly waiting for his coming. The most terrifying thing I could ever imagine is the Lord coming back and saying, I don't know you. You're not mine. But he gives us these warnings so that we could be prepared so that when he comes back, he has no problem recognizing us. He says, no, these are mine. These are definitely mine. Enter into my joy. Enter into my rest. God declares the end from the beginning to prepare us for the end. But what are we doing with that? Is there a storm coming that we're like, eh, it's never going to come? Or are we taking this stuff seriously? Because the Lord wants us to take this stuff seriously. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, how you lay all this stuff out for us, God. So much to think about. Lord, I pray that, Lord, when you come back, uh, there wouldn't be a question as to our relationship with you that you wouldn't have a problem recognizing us, but that you would recognize us, that you would invite us to enter into your eternal joy and rest. Lord, if there's things in our life that are, are symbolic of the wicked servant, I pray that you would convict us of those things and, and teach us how to change those things, that we would be a faithful and wise servant, or that we would be people you can count on to do what you're asking us to do, that you could trust us, Lord, and We just ask for the power of your spirit to to walk in these things. Lord, help us to be watchful and ready. In your name, amen.